Welcome back to the Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. Today we will continue our conversation on the people of Iran as we enter the third month of protests on what many people, including myself, are calling a revolution of freedom fighters asking for the toppling of this regime. But is the world listening? Here to discuss this today with us is Laudan Bozargan, who is a former political prisoner. Uh, the brutality of this regime hits very close to home for her as her brother was brutally murdered by the regime in 1988. She continues her work and advocacy uh, for the freedom fighters of Iran as a human rights activist, writing and exposing the truths and trying to set the record straight. Welcome to the program, Laudan. Thank you for having me. Laudan, I want to give you the floor. I want you to tell the viewers about your experiences in dealing with this current regime in Iran. I was nine years old when the 1979 revolution happened and I was going to a mixed school. My best friends were boys and suddenly with this revolution, everything uh, changed. So the first thing they did is segregating our schools, forcing us to go to all girls' schools, forcing us to wear a scarf on our head and then later on the long dresses and everything. And little by little, they took away everything we had and created this gender apartheid regime that has no respect for women. Uh, so all our schools, they were, uh, they were having the security forces in front of the doors to check our dresses. We couldn't even wear you know, white socks or white shoes or colorful uh, clothing or nothing. So it was always black, blue, uh, gray, brown. And um, so I was 16 when I was arrested in 1985 for uh, writing slogans on the, on the walls and distributing pamphlets against the war between Iran and Iraq. Uh, I was three and a half months in Evin prison in solitary confinement. And I was only released because there were Going to, there was so much pressure from the outside board on Iran that, and I was underage, so 1985 was wow. a good year to be arrested. Uh, wow. So they had to release me, but they gave me three and a half years uh, sentence that if next time I would be arrested, I had to pass it. I was I couldn't leave the country for four years, and uh, my uncle that was a government working, he was working for a bank. He had to sign for me and promising that I wouldn't run away. Uh, my brother was uh, arrested in 1982. He was a college student and they had closed all the schools for the um, revolution they had. They didn't want any student in the schools that they can fight against them. So he was at home and they called him and they, uh, one of his friends that was arrested under pressure and torture uh, called him and made an appointment with him on one of the squares in the town and he went and was arrested. So we didn't know for four months where he is and this not knowing was even worse. At least I was arrested at home, but for him, he just left the house and he never came back. Um, wow. So my mother was under so much pressure. We were going to the morgues, to the hospitals, everywhere to look for him. And they were always saying he's not here. And finally, after four months, they told us that he's in Evin prison. And then after two years of uncertainty, uh, they gave him 10 year sentences. And his indictment was uh, supporting a leftist party, distributing pamphlets and giving his pocket money to his group. Uh, which he was very, he, he didn't even believe it. He thought they were going to release him and he, after two years, he got a 10 year sentence. So we were actually trying to make the best out of it. We were hoping that he will eventually after the 10 years going to come out. So after six years and three months, we were waiting for his release. We had his room, we hadn't changed anything in his room, his books further, his clothing, everything. 
And suddenly they stopped the visitations and after four months, uh, they told us that he's executed. They told my father, they called my father and they said that he had forsaken his Islamic uh, religion and he's an apostate and he deserved to die. And my father asked for his body and they said, uh, an infidel doesn't even have a body. So today, uh, until today, 33 years later, we don't even know where he's buried or what happened wow. to his body. Wow, I'm so sorry. I mean, it's mm -hmm. chilling to hear the story. You, only a teenage, young teen, um, spending three months in prison for writing slogans on the wall. That's equivalent to today's tweet or Facebook posts, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, your brother, I mean, leftist propaganda. For anybody who's watching this and you're watching and thinking, oh, you know, some sort of uh, leftist only means in, in the in the definition of this regime that anybody who speaks out against this regime. So if you're speaking out against human rights, if you're speaking out against brutality, you'd be considered a leftist uh, because you don't buy into their, um, you know, garbage propaganda or their brut brutal, brutal regime. So I'm very sorry to you and your family for having um, endured so much at the hands of this regime. But you know, Laudan, I know that that has propelled you into a career um, advocating for and, and being the, the human rights activist that you are, you know, speaking out on behalf of so many other prisoners and um, really just, just bringing attention to this story. But you would think, Laudan, that when a 22-year-old is murdered because of some hair showing or a 10-year-old is shot dead or a medical student who is so incredibly beautiful and brilliant is thrown off of a building and killed at the hands of this regime, that the West, that the United States, that the United Nations, that the U European Parliament would be paying more attention to this and understanding the enemy with, with which the Iranian people are, are dealing with, which is their regime. Yeah, unfortunately, because we're a oil-rich country, so we have the curse of the oil and everybody is closing an eyes in everything that is going on uh, in this regime. And it's not even that this regime only kills us, that the the stability that it created in all Middle East, everything that is going in Syria, the killings in Syria, what's going on in Iraq, what's going on in Afghanistan, all these slogans against Israel, all this turmoil with Saudi Arabia, you know, all of this is the work of these, this brutal regime that unfortunately best does not want to deal with. Yeah, and it looks like, you know, people like you bringing attention to the, the, the human rights abuses, um, you know, you, I, I read in your bio that you have obviously um, focused on, on advocating for prisoners, right? Because you yourself were a prisoner, your brother. We have 15,000 prisoners right now. And we have been trying to bring attention to this, myself as a journalist, yourself as an activist. And yet the world community, which has not, I mean, well, let's talk about the mainstream media, has not supported this the way that the Iranian people would like. But yet they came out and said there's no truth to the the risk of these 15,000 being put to death. I mean, what would you, looking into the camera, say to those people who you yourself had a brother who was a prisoner and he, in fact, was as executed? That was his fate. Why don't they believe it? Because they're fools. I mean, they're always being fooled by this regime that they hang out and they talk about peace and friendship and dialogue. Uh, this regime is a murderous regime and we have the... The history to back our claims up, you know, the all the massacres that they did in the 1980s and the right. 1988 massacre of political prisoners was their, the IRI's regime final solution to the problem of political prisoners. And even now, it's that as soon as the 
eyes of the world goes away from Iran or these protests, they be able to suppress it, they are going to kill these prisoners. My brother was sentenced in their own unfair and unjust uh, judicial system without a lawyer, with a, uh, with a blindfolded eyes and in a five minutes court and had sentenced and had spent six, and a three, six years and three months behind bars. They still execute him. You think they are not going to kill these protesters? Right. They exactly. will and they are in danger. Right. And that's what the world needs to understand, that there is no due process, that somebody, a, a young woman or a young man who was just rounded up because they were in the wrong place at the right wrong time or because they were peacefully protesting can now lose their life. I mean, this is it's it's incredible because, you know, Laudan, as much as you and I can emphasize this, it seems like it's just falling on deaf ears. But speaking of uh, bringing attention to those who are fooling um, the, the powers that be, you have spent a lot of time bringing attention to the Islamic Republic's lobbies in the West and more specifically the professors here that are controlling the conversation. Can you talk a bit about these professors and what role they have had in the last 43 years? We are seeing that after the 1988 massacre and everything happened and accepting the peace, Islamic regime started uh, to have, uh, as they call it, dialogue with West because they realized it's not good for them that all these uh, resolutions are being uh, passed against them. So one of the characters that decided to work on this is Muhammad Jafar Mahalati, that is currently a professor at Oberlin College in Ohio. For 10 years, he worked at the foreign ministry of the Islamic regime. And from 1987 to 1989, he was the ambassador of Islamic regime to the United Nations. So during the massacre of 1988, he was the face that was lying to the world and was telling that this massacre did not happen. And these are the propaganda of, the, of our enemies against us. You know how hard it was back then? There was no social media, nothing to cover our story. So we were writing the names of people executed in a letter with the onions water, so it wouldn't be visible between the lines of the letter and we're sending it out to the United Nations and Amnesty International. And my brother is one of the people that uh, Iran's Islamic regime answered to the UN two years after his death. And they said that he escaped prison and is living at West. While they had given us his um, death certificate, they told wow. the world that he has escaped. So, and Mahalati was the person that was defending all of this. Uh, when the Islamic regime started these executions, first they killed all the Mujahideen, the, the particular group, not the leftists. Uh, so then after four weeks, they had to stop because there were also fight between them that the, the, the killing should stop. They stopped and they saw that the world didn't react so after the two weeks, they realized that they can kill the leftists as well. So they keep 1,000 more political prisoners. So in between, Amnesty International issued 16 urgent notices. The first one, 11 days before the execution of the leftists. And Mahalati lied and told the world that this is not happening. These are lies. These are propaganda. And even though there was protest in front of the United Nations, somebody burned himself alive to bring attention to this atrocity. Nobody paid attention and we paid the price for it. So now we want to make sure that the world knows that Iranian youth is in danger, that we want freedom, we want justice. This is the renaissance of Iran. If there is a democratic government in Iran, everywhere in the Middle East is going to be more peaceful and there, there, won't, there wouldn't be any, any uh, uh, what do you call it, these airplanes that they're giving to the Russia to kill Ukrainians or there wouldn't be all these mishaps in Syria that they are doing. 
So please help us. We really need help. We need, really need you to be the voice of Iranian people. Yeah, it seems like that's the message, right? And I, I get that message hundreds of times per week from people inside Iran, don't leave us alone. Um, that's, you know, what, what they're asking for. And we're trying our best here, right, to bring out the reports and give the statistics as best as we can and show them the videos and translate the slogans. But it seems like the media and the um, whether it's local governments, as we saw in the the uh, city council of Newport Beach uh, over the weekend or, you know, up to the White House, they are reluctant. They're hesitating to. I blame that. academia. I blame academia. All these liberal arts. So let's continue. Home. Let's continue with with your quest on this Oberlin professor. What was the reaction when you began to expose him to the university? First of all, they never answered us. 600 people had signed our letter, 54 of them, the family members of the executed. They always ignored us, never answered us. Two years later, we still haven't heard a peep from them. Uh, so the only reporter that asked them something right away was uh, Mr. Benjamin Weinhold from Jerusalem Post that sent them a request and they told him that this is, a, uh, this is something, that, this is a claim of 30 years ago, we are gonna look into it, like crimes against humanity uh, has a timeline that expires. Right. Uh, so since then, uh, we had three protests in front of Oberlin College. We had protests in Berlin, Germany, uh, London, New York, Washington, D.C., in front of the uh, businesses of the Oberlin board, uh, board of Trustees to tell them that this should be enough. Enough is enough. You have to fire this man. He's a dangerous for the U.S. national security as well because he's working with a hostile government. A government that's 40 for 40 years uh, right. is in sanctions against him. And unfortunately, the college is protecting him and telling us that there is not enough evidence, even though Amnesty International accused him of crimes against humanity for covering up this atrocity. You know, when you think about it, it's like a university that's supposed to be this beacon of enlightenment and de defenders of social justice and truth and human rights. And meanwhile, here you are bringing the, you know attention to somebody who has that you know history on his hands. I mean, the, you have all the evidence, um, and they're reluctant to hear it. They'd rather protect, you know, somebody who is you know, um, running their entire Middle Eastern studies program. Um, that's another issue. I know that we, we have seen many universities where their Middle Eastern studies program has entirely been hijacked by one of these individuals who are either um, directly involved with the Islamic Republic or tangentially, you know, apologetic to or, you know, um, in favor of the Islamic Republic, which absolutely skews what they're teaching in the department or the, the the new you know classes that come through all those young people are learning um, a, a certain version of the regime that doesn't match up with what we're seeing on the streets of iran right now we really believe that money is involved islamic regime bribes these institutions we have evidence that alabi foundation one of iran's uh, ngos in, in united uh, in u.s uh, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to universities and these people hired these um, characters like Mahalati and the former president of Oberlin traveled to Iran three times and we received an anonymous letter from one of the professors there that explained the process of Mahalati getting, fire, getting hired by Oberlin College. There were better candidates but they hired him because he had promised them to bring money and he received his tenure two wow. years before he publishes his book, which is another thing unheard of. And we were lucky enough that Congressman Jim Banks and Congresswoman uh, uh, Fox, they looked into this and they sent a letter 
uh, to Oberlin and they demanded that Oberlin shows them the money they received and be more transparent and answer the family members. But unfortunately, they kept it quiet. So we are hoping that um, Congress continue their quest in this matter and bring Mahalati and Oberlin College to justice. Yeah, you would hope that this wouldn't be a partisan issue, that it wouldn't matter uh, who's in Congress or which council member or congressman or senator is is in office in in your district but that you know overall we can get you know um bipartisan support on an issue that only has to do with freedom only has to do with um you know the people of iran and their future and has nothing to do with politics um especially when the united states is concerned um right now we're watching the fifa world cup begin um what are your thoughts as somebody again who is I know your heart is all over Iran right now. Um, what are your thoughts as you're watching this? This was actually, to begin with, a, a shameful act to give the, uh, the World Cup to Qatar that has nothing to do with the soccer, uh, no connections, and also very small country. But again, bribery and money talks. Uh, so FIFA is corrupt. And then they used modern slavery to build their stadiums, which was another shameful thing. And then, then there is also... Uh, gender apartheid, that's also another gender apartheid regime that uh, also is very harsh on uh, LGBTQ community and abuses them. So uh, we, we would have loved for this, uh, we wanted to boycott this game and nobody participates. Unfortunately, the team uh, qualified and went, so we were all cheering for England, which is not unheard of. Usually we like Brazil or <laughs> Argentina's right. team after Iran. But England never heard of. We don't like that team. But today exactly we were all cheering right. for them. We were all cheering for English uh, players, and we are happy that the uh, Islamic regime's team lost. This is not our national team. This Islamic regime team that before coming to the Qatar, they went to visit Raisi, which was one of mm -hmm. the executioners of 1988 massacre. He was one of the judges that ordered the executions, and also was uh, involved in the massacres of the 2000. Uh, November 2019, that we just passed the third years of it, that 1,500 protesters were killed in the streets uh, in three days. So we are very happy that this team lost, and we are and we are happy that also uh, Qatar is being exposed to what it what it really is. Uh, yeah. But with all these restrictions on alcohol, on women who have to cover themselves, and all of this, so we are happy that the world will see them for what they really are. Yeah, and if you look in that stadium, you see the uh, flag with the lion and the sun all over with that, uh, as you said. It, for those who, who um, don't know this this little, um, what, what Laudan was talking about, today was the um, first game between Iran and the UK, and you saw actually um, Iranians were cheering every time the UK would score a goal against the Iran team because they associate this Iran team with the regime and not with the people of Iran. So it's it's a tremendous thing to wrap your mind around when you're not you're not even rooting for your own team because of, of, of your government. Um, so the Iranian people have come to a, a, a really a, a very high climax, I should say, um, regarding their revolution. There is no going back. They will continue to climb and climb and the uh, protests and um, the brutality is becoming more and more. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the people are continuing. I mean, I just want to wrap up, Laudan, by asking you, you know, what do you think it will take to get this revolution to the next place and what can the world do to support it? 
The problem is there is so much brutality in Iran itself and so much oppression. So we still didn't get the big numbers of the protesters that we want. You know, if we need 5% of the population on the streets, so this revolution win, and I'm sure in the in the future we will get that. The 1979 revolution also took uh, 400 days to, to win. And right now we are at 65th day of the protest. Uh, but the problem is this regime is really brutal and it's killing people in Kurdistan. They have no mercy, you know, because they know they have no place to go. There is uh, because of this, right. all the sanctions and all the problems. So, first of all, we are hoping that Robert Mali, uh, the envoy of Iran, makes himself useful instead of appeasing the mullahs. He finds a solution now to transfer them somewhere in Venezuela or Cuba or somewhere. That's he should, since he loves to negotiate with Iran, this should be a good job for him to do. We want the Europeans to expel all Iran's ambassadors and also recall all their ambassadors. This, this regime must be isolated. They must feel the pressure of the West. They have to leave the streets to Iranian people and let us to make decisions for ourselves. They must hear the voice of the revolutionaries and they must go. These geriatric men cannot continue ruling on Iran, a, a country that wants democracy wants freedom, wants a normal life. So it's time for them to go and better people to come. And we want Europeans to help and stop thinking about their own pocket, their own um, benefit that they can receive from Iran. That's short-sighted because a democratic right. Iran can help everybody. So they better bank for the future, not for the very, uh, for right now, right now. Right, absolutely, and as you as you pointed out, the the removal of this regime will benefit the entire world. We're talking about the number one world sponsor of terror. We're talking about a regime that has blood on its hands, and not just Iranian blood, American blood as well. Uh, so it's it's there's not one good reason why this okay. regime should stay, as as many people have noted. And I, I thank you for your continued work on on highlighting this issue and bringing light to the political prisoners and the human rights abuses. And more power to you. And um, I, I, I hope that you'll come back and, and, and discuss this with us in the future. And for those of you who would like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, I thank you for tuning in. You can go to YouTube.com/slash Lisa Deftari and to subscribe to our daily top ten email go to foreigndesknews.com.